0: Uh, if you're a visitor here today, it's just worth mentioning that we have started a new series a few weeks ago, all about church, the hope of the world, and we've been having a walk, a walk through different topics uh, about which we think are key if we're to understand the glory of God's church. So we've been looking at the praying church, the fruitful church, Jesus' church, and today we're going to be looking at that exciting, awesome subject of the giving church, and um, and when I was thinking and praying about this, uh, the scripture which came zooming into my head straight away was that classic in Matthew chapter six, where Jesus just lays it on the line. Jesus was that kind of guy. If you don't know much about Jesus, you get used to, the more you read the gospels, you realize he was just kind of a man's man. He was just like straight talking. He wasn't, he, didn't, he never pussyfooted around things. He was just like, thanks, Steve. He was just like, he used to tell it how it is. Okay. He used to offend people all the time. It was just fantastic. And so, Jesus says in, Mark, in Matthew 6, he just says, no one can serve two masters. You can't do it. You'll either love the one or hate the other. You'll either be devoted to the one or despise the other. And then he just, he just gets even clearer. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. Okay, I spoke about it a few weeks ago. I said, you can't multitask. You know how some of us think we can multitask, do one thing and do another, and do, listen to the phone and do work, and you can't do it. He says, when it comes to God and money, you will either love one... ...and hate the other, or you'll love one and hate the other. You can't, you can't multitask when it comes to this one. And then what he does is, he takes a principle that he said in Matthew 6. And then in Matthew 26, so if you can turn there in your Bibles, Matthew 26. What we find is, and this is so often the way with Jesus, he takes a principle and then he gives us a real life example of it. What we see in Matthew chapter 26 we see is a real-life example of exactly what he said, that you'll either love God and hate money, or you'll love money and hate God. And what we're about to read here is two incidents that are deliberately back-to-back, deliberately right next to each other, to just provide a kind of punch-in-the-face, deliberately obvious, contrasting thing, so that when we look at them, we can easily see that these two people who are at the center of the two stories personify each of these things. We're going to see two people. One person who is passionate about Jesus and who doesn't give a hoot about money. And then we're going to see the next story, one person who is passionate about money and doesn't give a hoot about Jesus. And, And as we read this, we are deliberately meant to be saying all the time, Who am I more like? That's the question today. We're going to be looking at the whole thing of Mary, the sister of Martha, someone we want to be like, and then we're going to look at Judas, someone that we've all heard of, someone we don't want to be like. So let's read them, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 6. It'll be up on the screen if you haven't got a Bible. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she's actually done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the entire world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me? if I deliver him over to you. And they paid him 30 bits of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Jesus, we are so thrilled to be here today as your people. We say thank you, Holy Spirit, that your presence has been upon us. We are so aware that you are with us today. God, as we just come now and we look at a subject which the English don't talk about. I pray now, Lord God, that we would be very different. Lord, we are not primarily English or South African or Australian or whatever. Lord, if we're Christians, we are people of a different kingdom. And Lord, we just want to say we want everything of our life to be in the light. We don't want to have secret compartments, Lord God, that we never talk about. So I thank you, Lord God, for your word that is sharp and active and brings change in our life. And let it do its work today, mighty God. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. So we see here two people... Deliberately contrasting, and remember, we're going to be asking ourselves, "Who are we more like?" Two people here, and actually, what we, in effect, therefore, get are two tools that God wants us to have in our life so that we can become more like Mary than anything else. Two tools, if we really get a hold of in our life, will equip us to become more like Mary. Anyone here want to become more like Mary? Yes, all of us. We want to become more like Mary, whether we're a a woman or a man. Two keys. Number one, the first key, resist the reasonable. Resist the reasonable. And number two, pursue the preposterous. Pursue the preposterous. And I will explain later why I've used that preposterous word, preposterous. So number one, then, the first key to being a giving people is something to resist. We've got to resist the reasonable. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, this sermon is going to get more and more positive as we go along, but we've got to just start where the Bible starts. We have to start by having a somewhat sobering look at this character called Judas. Now, Judas, if you don't know much about the Bible, he's a, he's a bad guy, all right? Boo! He's probably the ultimate bad guy in the entire Bible because ultimately he betrays Jesus. So he's like the worst person you want to be anything like. And what we learn from John's account of this same story is that Judas isn't just the one who goes off and asks for the bits of silver. Now, this is important. We learn he is actually standing there in the first story with the other disciples when Mary anoints Jesus with her, with her perfume. Judas is standing there when this happens. And what we have to realize is it's him, as John tells us, that is the one that says this reasonable thing. He's the one that says, why this waste? For this could have been sold and a large sum given to the poor. Now, Tom Wright points out, he's a New Testament scholar, he says, we have to resist the temptation, as soon as we we hear the word Judas, to just sort of distance ourselves and go, well, I'm nothing like him. Because what he's actually saying here at this moment is a very, at one level, reasonable thing to say. He says this, here is Judas. The cautious, prudent, reliable Judas, as he must have seemed up until this point. Looking after the meager resources of the group, without steady, settled income, anxious to provide for their needs and have something left for the poor. Put aside your natural inclination to distance yourself from Judas. After all, even at this last moment, none of the other disciples suspected him of treachery. Can you see just a glimpse of him as you look in the mirror? And what this this is teaching us, the Bible is subtle. It's showing us here that actually at one level, what Judas was saying was something that probably loads of the other disciples would have said, yeah, absolutely, this is crazy. We could have sold this stuff and given it all to the poor. You see, in the previous chapter in Matthew 25, Jesus has just been talking about the end of the world, right? And he's been basically talking about the sheep and the goats. The sheep are people who know him, the goats are the ones that don't. And this is the key point. The thing that separates the two in that story in Matthew 25 is their attitude to the poor. He said, did you clothe the naked? Did you feed the hungry? Did you give water to the thirsty? So it's almost like it's still ringing in their ears that Jesus has just, just been saying, in terms of your judgment, you've got to think about attitude toward the poor. So when Judas says this, it isn't like some unreasonable thing for him to say. Actually, it's probably like the reasonable thing to say. But what we learn... In the gospel account of John about this, that is so fascinating, is that although at one level, what Judas was saying was reasonable, is that in his heart, actually, that reasonable excuse was cloaking a heart that was secretly corrupt and loving money. You see, in John 12, in the same account, he says, he said this about giving it to the poor, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You see, this is absolutely, this totally changes how we see the story. Because what we realise here is that although Judas at one level was being the reasonable voice of concern about this extravagant thing happening, internally, he was just freaking out. It's like he had the God of money on his throne. And the God of money was seeing this outrageously extravagant thing happening... And was freaking out. And so we find he freaks out and he says something in a kind of reasonable way. But then his next natural reaction is to go to, go, to, go to the very place where he knows he can find money. It's almost like, almost like a drug addict needing a fix. It's like he sees this thing happening and he's like, oh my goodness, this is so outrageous. I've got to go somehow and get somewhere to get something to to sort me out. And so we read that he goes to the one place, to the chief priest, and says, what will you do? What will you give me if I betray this guy? 30 pieces of silver? Great. Fantastic. Thanks. Oh. Oh, thank goodness. He is so enslaved to the God of money that actually seeing the woman, seeing Mary, doing something where she shows she didn't give a hoot about money, freaks him out. And he runs straight away to get a fix of money. And you know, the ironic thing is this, is that actually 30 bits of silver was nothing. In the Old Testament, written a thousand years before what we've just read happened, 30 pieces of silver was significant because it was the amount that God stipulated that if your ox killed someone, then you had to give them 30 bits of silver. Not the dead person, obviously. You gave the family 30 pieces of silver to say, I'm sorry. But remember this, that was a 1,000 years before the incident we're reading now at Nort AD or thereabouts. And what we're seeing now is something called inflation. So actually the 30 bits of silver, which were 3,000 years ago, was a lot of money, scholars tell us would probably be worth about 10% of what they were originally. So it's just like nothing. And so he's actually saying, 30 bits of silver, yeah, sure, I will deny the God of the universe for 30 bits of silver, that's fine. Because so is the enslaved To this other God. It's perfectly exemplifying what Christ has said in Matthew 6. You can't serve both God and money. And the reality is, we have to realise here, there is a lesson in here for us. Now I know this is a bit hard hitting. I'm saying, oh, are we like Judas? Well, I hope none of us are. But it's deliberately in the Bible as a beacon to the church to say, don't be anything like this guy. And this is the key thing. We have to realise is that although we know because of the Gospel of John what was happening in Judas's heart, at the surface level, if you had been in that room, what he would have said would have seemed quite reasonable. And so for us, we have to ask ourselves, when it comes to the issue of money and giving away, are we a people who can cloak actually a heart that's still in some way enslaved to money with reasonable excuses? I mean, I, when I read this, I felt conviction. I, by nature... I'm a stingy man. I really, I'm. You know, I know the different costs of a main course at a Curry House. How weird is I know that if a, a chicken tikka masala is normally about seven quid, whereas a chicken piazza is about four fifty. That's how stingy I am because I know, actually, that kind of stuff. And the thing I know it's stingy rather than just being a saver, which is, sorry, a, yeah, which is how I cloak the thing, is the fact that when it comes to giving money to other people, I'm frugal and wise. But when it comes to stuff for me, I'm an incredibly generous giver. I've just noticed there's like two toms. And it's like when it comes to, you know, to stuff for, that's boring or just for other people, I'm like, well, we have to be careful. We have to make sure that we are managing our resources well. But when it comes to, I don't know, a new bike for me or a new laptop, I will cloak it in the veneer of reasonable things. I'll be like, well, the thing is, the reason why I have to get a Sony laptop is because its better quality, you see. It's better quality, and that means that actually I'm being very wise with my money. And the reality is, it's like, you're not fooling anyone, Tom. You just like Sony's because they're cool, and they just look good, and they're kind of light and funky. And actually, the reality is, it's true. And we can do this with every area. You might be a lady, and you might like dresses. And you might think, well, I've got to get my dress from Monsoon, or somewhere else posh, which I don't know. And you're sort of... You'll sort of, you know, you'll, 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 you'll put a veneer of some sort of, well, you know, I've got a lot of weddings this summer, Tom, and, you know, and actually it will last longer. Well, there may be some element of truth, but the reality is, is there any part of you that is cloaking a heart that just likes stuff in a veneer of a reasonable excuse? Because in an extreme way, this is kind of what Judas was doing. And we have to realise that it's in here to challenge us. It's in here you know, when we come to the giving in, in a few minutes' time for the, for the building offering, we can easily cloak it in things like, wow, yeah, I've got to save. I've got to have money put away for a rainy day or as a buffer. You know, I've got a family now. And those things are not wrong. They are noble things. But the point is, if it is cloaking actually a heart that is secretly just wanting to hold on to it, then actually it isn't good. And it often expresses itself. You know, the reality is here is that but this was expressing itself in a reasonable thing. And we have to realize the fact that just because we're part of a, a church that is going for it with God, and perhaps our friends are passionate, and we love to worship God, and we, and we love to come on a Sunday, get a cell group and everything else. Proximity doesn't mean that we've got this sorted. Because the reality is Judas was part of the gang. He was a chosen apostle. He preached the word. He would have seen Jesus do miracles. He would have heard him preach. And yet we realize here... The reality is, this one area of his life suddenly flared up when actually he saw a woman who had gone to the next level. She had gone to the next level. She had seen a treasure in Jesus that was so much greater than money. She just instinctually acted. And Judas, it it, it just showed his immaturity. It showed the fact that there was still this part of him that was still worshipping another god. And so he acts. So we start with a little bit of a sobering moment But the Bible does that. It causes us to say, Lord, you know, I don't want to be anything like this guy. And we have to realize that we have to resist the reasonable. We have to resist falling into the trap of of, with our minds giving in a reasonable way when God actually wants us to liberate us. He wants to liberate us to do things that are crazy. And so we're going to move on to our second point, which is actually the second key we see here is that we are called to... Not just resist the reasonable, we are also called, positively, to pursue the preposterous. Now, why have I used the word preposterous? I'll tell you why. Because actually, the definition of it is this, and it is just perfect. Completely contrary to nature, reason, or common sense. It's absurd, senseless, or utterly foolish. Amen. We see here in this woman, Mary... Sister of Martha, she, for reasons we're about to look at, has seen something in Jesus, and her, the only word I could think of, and also begins with, begins with P, so you know, you can use it with pursue when you remember it, is the fact that she just gives in an utterly foolish way. She just gives in a way that is just extravagant. And so we find here the second key is that we're called to pursue the preposterous. Pursue the preposterous. And what we understand here, a key thing that's happened in order for Mary to be someone who gives in a preposterously extravagant way is this thing called revelation. Revelation. You see, the Bible communicates to us that in this life, all of man's efforts to understand this world in our own strivings and with our own brains and with our own logic is in contrary and is different to something called revelation. If you think about it like, The whole of humanity is trying to work out things. We're trying to work out what's going on. But God says that the only way that mankind can know him is through revelation. We go this way, but God says the only way you can know about me is if I reveal myself to you. You can't work out anything. You can't, with your own brains, ultimately come to a place of understanding me. Actually, I have to come and reveal myself to you. And that's why... Jesus came to earth. That's why he came as God as well as man to reveal God to us. And so when you become a Christian, whether it feels like it or not, what's actually happened is, is that God has revealed himself to you in your hearts. And where once you maybe thought that Christianity was the weirdest thing in the world, and maybe you still think it pretty is, but actually that Jesus is the truth. And you may be a non-Christian here today. And you may be sitting here thinking, well, I've got all these questions in my brain. I think these guys here, bless them, are a bit weird. But there is something in my heart that I'm just thinking, maybe there's some truth in this. And something's just a little kernel. is just starting to get interested. It's just starting to think, well, maybe there's some truth in this. I believe that's revelation. Is that when God starts to put in you something that just, you think, well, this isn't really from me. I'm just finding that there's something happening here. It's what it means to become a Christian. And today I want to give you an opportunity to give your life to Jesus. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that little kernel of faith later on. And I want you to be thinking even now about it. Because actually doing that, giving your life to Jesus, turning away from your old life and giving your life to him is the best decision you'll ever make. But this is the thing. We think of Revelation as like these curtains, when they're shut, they open up, God opens it up and we see what's behind. But then as we walk through our Christian life, God, just like here actually, opens up curtain after curtain after curtain. As we walk through our Christian life, again and again, you'll read a scripture you've read a hundred times, and suddenly you've got to go boom, and you'll see God in a totally different way. You know what I'm talking about? It's amazing. It's, it's a gift from God. We can't sort of work it out. It just goes bloop, and there it is, and you're like, wow, I've never seen that. You're so amazing. And this is what's happened with Mary, okay? This is so exciting. I think she's had two revelations. Two revelations that have led to her being someone who gives preposterously. And with these two, we'll finish. A revelation of death, and secondly, a revelation of resurrection. First of all, I think Mary has had a revelation of death. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that somehow, I think in in, in Mary's inner person, she has seen, with the eyes of her heart, the destiny of Jesus. She has somehow seen, it might be because in the beginning of the chapter, Jesus has just said out loud, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. She might have heard him say that. But I think it might be that. But what definitely has happened is that there has been a revelation in her heart where God has revealed to her this destiny of Jesus to die. The destiny of Jesus to go to the cross and die the death that we should have died to take the punishment from God for the sin that we've committed, to take the righteous wrath of the Father on Jesus rather than us. And I believe she's had a revelation of this death, which has meant she has acted in a way which is expressing her incredible gratitude to him. And the way that we know this is the fact that the perfume, I think it says in the NIV, that she pours on him, we're not talking like a bottle of Chanel Number 5, guys. This is... she's she's pouring on him something called myrrh. And myrrh was the perfume, the ointment, that was always used at a funeral. It was a thing that you poured over a dead body. And so if you think about what's happened here, there's Jesus at Simon the leper's house, they're hanging out, having a meal, that's fine. suddenly Mary zooms off, and she comes back dragging, like the very best coffin money can buy. And on it, there's, in big gold letters, J.C., and she's got a, and she comes back, Jesus, I've had a revelation of your death. I've had a revelation of where you're gonna go. And here it is, a gift for you. A gift for you, my friend. I mean, it's kind of kind, but a bit weird. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, thanks for that, Mary. That's the kind of thing that's just happened. She's gone out, probably a family heirloom, this bottle of myrrh that's synonymous with death and funerals, and she's pouring it all over him. And we just get used to the story like, oh, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. Well, it is. But it's also kind of weird. And the only way that Mary would have actually done this is if she'd had a revelation that Jesus was going to die. And he says this. He just goes, he doesn't bat an eyelid. He's like, thanks, Mary. He says, you're preparing my body for my burial. And it's like these two guys, they get it. The rest of the disciples still do not understand why Jesus has to die. But Jesus gets it, and by revelation, Mary has got it. So she's like, yes, you're going to die, and you're going to save the world through your death. And I want to identify with it. She's saying through this, I want to identify in any way I can. I want to express to you that as you now, in a few days' time, are going to die for the sin that I've committed, suddenly I want to do anything I can to express to you the incredible gratitude. And so this is it. The, the revelation of the death of Jesus has meant that she now has a death to ingratitude. Her heart is flowing over with gratitude towards Jesus. You know, we hear in John that this ointment was worth, uh, apparently could have been sold for 300 denarii. Now, a denari apparently was a day's wage. So we're talking almost a year's entire wage. Now, I don't know how much you guys earn. Say you earn 20,000, 30,000. Some of you will earn more than that. Some of you will earn less. The point is, it's a heck of a lot of money. 20 grand. Imagine if I came here and I said, Jesus, I love you so much. I'm going to burn 20 grand. It makes no sense, but I'm going to do it because I feel stirred to do it. And it's total waste. I could have given it to the Scrine Foundation. I could have given it to work with people on the street, but I'm just going to burn it because I want you to know how much I love you. That's the kind of thing she did. It was just like potty. It was just like, woman, you have lost it. That's what the other guys would have thought. And yet Jesus is so amazed at what she's done. He says, "This incident, above every other incident, will be locked to my gospel for the rest of eternity. Whenever my gospel is told, this one story is so preposterous, it's so contrary to nature. it's so foolish that it's going to be locked." And you know what? Thousands of years later, it still is. It's still there in the synoptic. It's there. When you look at the gospel, you see this story being told with it. And it's because the death, her seeing a revelation of where Jesus was going to die, it changed something in her. It changed her heart. It, it completely changed her heart. Where she realized now that actually she wanted to give anything. She wanted to give everything. And I know, guys, if, if, you were, if I was to ask you now, you'd say, that's what I want to be like. Anyone here want to be like that? Please say yes. Amen? amen. amen. Again, amen? Amen. We I want to be like that. I do. I'm not playing at church. I want to literally do equivalent things in the 21st century in Canterbury. Do you want to do that? I want to, I really mean it. I want to do mental things for Jesus. I want to do things that people who are logical and reasonable go, I don't get that. And I'm pleased they don't get it. Because Jesus has appeared in our hearts as a church and we said. Hallelujah! I'm living for another place. I'm living for an eternity with Jesus. And I want to demonstrate it in a way that isn't logically worked out, that is preposterous and is over the top and is bonkers and is glorious and means I'm thrust totally upon the dependence of Jesus with our money. (gasps) Scary. That's what it's about. But do you know what I have to say? As we pursue this as a church in the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years, however long we're all in this church, I hope we grow old together. Do you know what the reality is? It will mean our lifestyles will change. You know, I don't believe if we give away loads of money that we will naturally, therefore, definitely have loads of money ourselves. Some would say that. I would say that actually, God promises as you give to Him, He will give back. But it doesn't always mean you're going to be absolutely loaded. It doesn't. It doesn't mean that. It means that you'll be prosperous in the whole of your life. It means that knowing Jesus in a new way, you'll feel like a king. I say that sometimes. I say, I feel like a king. I've got a terraced house, and I've got a seven-year-old car, but I've got an amazingly beautiful wife, and this daughter is just God-sent, and I've got a church that I just adore with every fiber of my being. I'm on a salary, which means I don't have to worry about things. And I'm in a beautiful city, and God's blessing means that we feel like kings and queens. It doesn't mean that literally we're going to drive around in a Mercedes. Although maybe that will be your path. But I'm just saying for us, we have to realize, I believe, Ecclesiastes proverb says, neither poverty nor riches. God, give me something in between. Give me a simple life. Give me a simple life, Lord. I might be able to earn bucket loads, and I'm going to give loads away so my life is simple. Not poverty not so that we're like more holy but more holy to be poor we can have we can have lives that are great and have friends over and meals and a nice house but it's not about it's not about us being a people who go to one extreme or the other because the reality is as we live lives that are simple and people hear about the fact that you could have earned that much and hoarded it but you gave it away to God's purposes man that gets some questions going John Piper, an amazing preacher from America. I was over at a conference in uh, January in Atlanta in America. And this conference's budget was $6 million. That's how much they spent on making it happen. Very godly people, but they just chose to do that. And um, John Piper, who's part of the uh, team there, he came on. Everyone was incredibly cool. Everything was cool, 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 cool. The badges were cool. Everything, was, everything would have just spent, you know, just incredible amounts of money. And he came up with a knackered old tweed jacket on, little side parting. Just walked up, not looking cool. And he came up there, and I can say to you, he was in a different league of anointing when it came to God owning every word he said. And everyone there was just like, John Piper. They knew that this guy walked close to God. And he just got up and he took his name badge. He said, hmm, this is cool. Wonder how much this costs to make. And he says, oh, you can't say that. And he didn't, you know, he's very close to the leaders of this thing. But he just said, you know, as Americans... As Christians, Americans, we we can't just think that if we throw our little tithe or we just give our little pennies out of the window to the poor, then that's enough. It is a lifestyle change. It means that at the very core of your being, you daily realize that you are living for another treasure. That there is another treasure. Another treasure that is a thousand times infinitely more glorious than the treasure this world thinks is the treasure. That's the point. And he he said, a flashy church won't ever attract people to Jesus. It'll attract people to your church, won't attract them to Jesus. The thing that attracts people to Jesus is when they meet an individual who could have earned a stack load and kept it themselves, and actually they gave it away and lived a simple life because they're living for another treasure. That will attract people to Jesus, the true treasure. Rick Warren, who leads either the biggest or the second biggest church in America, tens of thousands of people. In in an article recently, it came out... (coughs) that he doesn't take any salary from his home church at all. He lives entirely on the income from his books, which are, do sell pretty well, to be honest. But, but uh, nevertheless, <laughs> he recently gave back 25 years' worth of salary to his church and then stopped claiming any salary. He lives off the income of his, of his books, but he reverses tithes. He gives away 90% and he lives on 10%. He lives in the same small house that they bought 20 years ago when him and his wife started the church when there's no one there. And they drive a knackered old six, seven-year-old car. I'm not saying that's holy. I'm just saying this is the path this guy's gone on. And in, amidst a sea of other teachings in the evangelical world in America, he's a guy who's leading either the biggest or the second biggest church in America. And he has a simple life. He could have been a multi-millionaire. And some people would have said, do it, do it. Do it, you've earned it. And, he's, and he he's. I haven't earned anything. I'm a steward. I'm a steward. This is God's money. And I don't even want to get anywhere near temptation. So I'm living a simple life. And I'm putting it into the kingdom. Amen? Amen. God honour that man. When I read that, I cried. I was like, oh, something in me wants to be like that. I want to be like that. <laughs> Not that I have the temptations for the money that he has. But <laughs> nevertheless, in my own little way. So he's at a revelation of death. She's at a revelation of Jesus' death. That we need to have. That means, in view of Christ's sacrifice, his total commitment to us, man, when we, whatever we give, whatever we give in our life, it will be nothing in comparison. But secondly, we finish with this, she's also had a revelation of resurrection. And this is so exciting. Again, we don't see this in this account in Matthew, but in John's account, we read of another man present at Simon's house. Who is it? Anyone here know? Well done. That's from Jason. Gold star. Jay, uh, not Jason. Lazarus is there. Jason's there too. No, Lazarus is there. Who's Lazarus? Lazarus was a guy who died. And Jesus came over and he raised him from the dead. And so he's alive again. And he's now at this house having the meal and he's there. Big wow, you say. Guess who is his sister? Mary. Mary, our hero of the hour, has had a resurrection of Jesus' death, has had a revelation of his death. But now she has seen her brother die. Jesus go over and go, boom, get up, you're alive again. And she has also had a revelation that this same God, man, Jesus, who is going to die for, to save the world, is also God who has resurrection power. She's also seen him raise a man who is dead, her own brother. And so, this is the thing. It's one thing to have a revelation of God's love through seeing the death of Jesus. That is amazing. And our gratitude follows suit. But it is quite another to have a second revelation of the resurrection power of Jesus. It's one thing to have a revelation of Jesus' love, but it's quite another thing to have a second revelation of the power of Jesus to raise someone from the dead. Because what that means is, is that when when we're thinking about giving our money, it suddenly switches from being us sort of, oh, I've got to summon a bit of gratitude because Jesus died for me. It, It switches from something about us giving away and losing out. It totally turns around. And we suddenly realize the one that we are giving to is the one who can raise anything to life. And so a little bit of sacrifice on our part gets the breath of God on it and he raises it up and uses it in a way that will blow our tiny minds. When you realise and have a a revelation of the resurrection power of God and Jesus, you suddenly realise that when it comes to giving, actually you're investing. You're investing in something that is going to, either on this earth or in the world to come, is going to bear fruit in your life. So, There you are. You are planning on spending 50 quid on getting your hair done at Doodahs or Stones or Tony and Guy's, whatever is your choice of preference. But here today, God says to you, sister, brother, possibly, sister probably, I want you to invest it. I want you, as good as it is, to look nice and have your hair done. I want you to put that money into a project that I am breathing on. So that, as Luke 4.16 tells us, when you get to heaven, there will be someone who comes up to you with tears in their eyes and they say, thank you. Thank you that you sensed God's leading and you put that money into something that I was breathing on. A project that I had initiated. Thank you that that meant that building was built, which meant 15 years from now, the gospel was preached on one Sunday morning. And I happened to be in there because I'd seen the building. I was sitting eight rows from the back, six from the middle aisle. I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Something changed in my life, and I've never been the same again. And my whole life has been turned around, and now I'm I'm here in heaven. And it is in part because you gave your money to that project that God was calling you to. Amen? Amen? Amen. And suddenly you're thinking, it goes from thinking, well, I can't have my hair done this month, to actually being welcomed into eternal dwellings and people going, here she comes. It's the generous giver. The one who just had average hair from now on. Because every time, actually, she was putting it to God's purposes. You might be sitting here and you think, well, Tom, I've been saving up hard, man. I've been saving up hard for uh, my new camera. 500,000 pound camera. Man, you understand, it's got, got 6,000 megapixels. It's just like the best on the market. It's, it, Tom, I deserve it. I've worked really hard. God loves pictures and I'm photographing creation, and I'm pretty good, and I've got to develop my kit. Absolutely. But maybe God is whispering to you to say, as good as that is, why don't you take that and invest it into, a, into the building of a facility that I am talking about, which means that in eight years' time, eight years' time, there will be a woman, a single mum, had a really hard life, who knows nothing about God, who is at rock bottom, and a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend goes to this weird thing called coffee and chaos. And so one day I happened to go along, and I was there, and I had nothing to live from my life, and then suddenly I heard some woman mention this thing called Jesus. And I just thought, I've got nothing to lose. And I, I got talking to them about Jesus, and they ended up praying for me, and I ended up there and then in the annex to the building around the corner, giving my life to Jesus Christ. And you know what? Then my husband got saved. And then my little kids got raised with a father. And then they went to their schools and they brought revival to Winship Primary School. And it was all, we can laugh, but it's true. This is how God works. And and your giving, your £1,000, which we're going to spend on the camera as good as it was, now has helped facilitate the building of something this nation desperately needs, which is big, God-glorifying buildings which house God's people. That's what God wants. And so suddenly we realise that we are never giving at all. We are stewards of that which God has given us, and he's watching us and saying, guys, I want the best for you. I want to teach you godly stewardship so that you invest it. You invest it, and when you get to heaven, you're not standing there with no one high-fiving you, with everyone else going, hey, there he is. Thanks, buddy, that you learned the principles of the kingdom. And you're standing there going, oh, no. Oh, no, I'd I'd missed that one. I never quite got... To grips with it. God wants the best for us. He's not a hard taskmaster. He's the most generous God in the world. And He promises that as we give preposterously, His his promise to us is that He will not let us go without. He will look after us. He who clothes the lilies of the field, He will look after us. It's His wonderful promise. And guys, I want to say that this is true. All of this is true. But it's so relevant to us right now because we are living in days where God has spoken to us in a way we cannot ignore. Through scripture, he has spoken to us. Isaiah 9 says, of the increase of Jesus' government and peace, there will be no end. Isaiah 49 says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant, city church, just to restore the tribes of 300 people. I want you to be big. In Isaiah, it says, Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. Do something practically to get ready for what I'm doing in you spiritually. God's word is absolutely bursting and saturated with promises of church expanding. And as we expand, and we're already in one of the biggest secondary school halls in the whole city, it has a practical implication. It's so exciting. It means that God's heart and passion and desire is never for us just to be here in 10 years' time. His desire for us is that as we see soul after soul after soul met with Jesus, and suddenly your neighbour that you never imagined could know Jesus walks in that door, and they go to your astonishment, I want to give my life to Jesus. And that happens thousands of times in the next few years. Guys, God is doing things in us we've got to get ready for and it involves our wallets prophetically as well as scripturally god is saying to us get ready with your wallets i love this he spoke this through julian adams a few weeks ago close your eyes just receive this now this is what god spoke to julian to us just dream with me humor me for a few minutes this is god's passion for us city church i want to give you an ability to hold much more. There is an international anointing on this church. Many people coming, going, being sent. It is a day of new things. You are the salt and there is loads of water all over this place. No longer will there be miscarriages of ministries. And I see a newspaper clipping about the faithfulness and godliness of this town. We are the salt that he is pouring out. And rivers will teem with life again for all manner of fish because I'm bringing new life. In this season of transition, I am giving you a new and much bigger bowl. I see multiple buildings, not just one, that will be used to serve and affect this city. An open place of influence, of influence where people will drive past and say, that's the City Church Canterbury. Thousands of people will be resourced. God is going to build a church of over a thousand. I want you to change an old bowl of small-mindedness to be a new bowl of limitlessness. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God is speaking to us to say, guys, I'm giving you a brand new bowl. I also want to say, and I have to be careful here, I have to say that behind the scenes in the last few weeks and months, God appears to be opening up a door of opportunity that if it comes to pass, and it could, it might not, it might not, if it comes to pass, it'll be very exciting. <laughs> if it comes to pass, it will be the answer to our prayers in terms of, of an opportunity, let's just say that, try and stay vague, uh, of an opportunity of us having a place of our own that would just be magnificent. It fits in perfectly. And I want to say this, is that if it doesn't happen, right, we're going to still tell you the story. Because the story is hilarious. It's amazing. It's just like, so God. It's, you know, as leaders, we don't know what we're doing. I just want to be honest with you, we don't know what we're doing. It's all God. And, and, and it's just like God going, ha, 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 there's the city Church Canterbury. Bloop. There you go. Have this opportunity. And you're like, What? What are you talking about? Look at us, we're just a bunch of wallies. Are you, re- are, you, are you serious? Yeah, because it's not about you. It's about a big Jesus working through a normal people. Amen? Amen. Shall we stand? Can we have the band back? We're going to rock the house. Okay, we're not going to have a quiet time of ministry today because I, this is a moment of celebration. Guys, Don't worry about that. Focus. Remember what Jesus has been speaking to us about in our hearts. Okay? God is on us, guys. God is stirring in us to believe for a new day. God has a building for us that will mean that thousands of souls in this city will be touched through the people of God. Does that sound exciting? Does that sound exciting? Yes, it does. It sounds wonderful. And we don't quite know where it is yet, but God does. He's got all the money, he's a big God, and he wants to release finance. So we're going to have a little singer song now. We're going to be a bit, I don't know, African or something. We're just going to, let's just throw off our Englishness, alright? We are kingdom people, we're not English people or Australian or whatever you are. We are people who say, God, you're good and I've got nothing to lose. So we're going to have those, those baskets go round and write checks payable to the City Church, Canterbury. To Tom Short. No, just joking. To the City Church, Canterbury. And guys, let's give preposterously. Amen? Amen? Amen. 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 And if, you haven't got, if you've not in your checkbook, just write an IOU in. We're going to do the same thing next week. So the band, take it away. Okay, let's go for it.